The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Amen. I am excited to be launching into a brand new book of the Bible, easily one of the greatest, one of my favorite 66 books in all the world. So go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John. So John chapter 1, the title of my message for you is Seeing the Invisible God. Seeing the Invisible God. And before we jump into the text, let's just start with a character sketch. Who is this guy, John? The Gospel bears his name, so let's talk about him. Who was he? Well, we often think of him as this revered figure, this larger-than-life apostle, author of one of the four Gospels. We often see his story depicted in stained glass, if you've ever been to an old church. And I think it's easy for us to forget that he came from humble beginnings. John started out his trade is that he was a fisherman. Then at some point, like, like so many others, he had an encounter with a guy named John the Baptist who was a fiery preacher, and we'll get more into his story tonight a little bit, and then in the coming weeks, even more. But he became a follower of John's, a disciple of John's, and then one day he heard John the Baptist point at Jesus and say, this is the guy you should be following. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And that was it. From that day forward, John began to follow Jesus, and he spent the next three and a half years of his life walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, learning from Jesus, traveling with Jesus. And at the end of that three and a half year period, he came to believe that Jesus was more than just a good man or a godly man or a moral man or even a prophet. He came to believe that Jesus was and is the unique son of the most high God and savior of the world. And John would spend the rest of his life telling people about Jesus. Even as an old man, he was the last of the apostles to, to still be on the earth. They had all died, and he was an old guy. And he still couldn't get over the fact that he got to do life with God in the flesh. He writes about it in 1 John, actually, chapter 1, verse 1. And I just I want to read this to you because I think it gives us a sense of who this guy was and, and what he thought about that experience. Let's read this together out loud. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. I mean, can't you just you feel the, the emotion in his words as he says, we heard him. I mean, we saw him. We, we touched him. And John, remember, he wasn't just some random guy that was on the outer fringes of this story as it unfolded. He was part of Jesus' most close network of friends, these 12 guys that did life with him. But even beyond that, he was within the innermost circle of three, along with Peter and James. He got, these three guys got to see things and experience things that nobody else got to see and experience. He got to see Jesus transfigured before him. He got to be in the room when Jesus raised a little girl from the dead. 
And then as Jesus hung on the cross, it was John who was standing next to Mary. And Jesus looked down and he said, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. In other words, he entrusted the care of his mother to John. That's not something that you just do with anybody, right? You would only give that responsibility to somebody that you trusted implicitly. John was there at the cross, and then he was there three days later and saw the empty tomb. So obviously, John and Jesus were very close. And you you get a a sense for just how close they were when you look at the, the title that John adopts for himself. He never refers to himself by name in this gospel. Instead, when he wants to refer to himself, he simply calls himself, I'm the one Jesus loved, which is very humble of him, right? I'm Jesus' favorite is basically what John's saying. But I see something beautiful in that. And perhaps here's our first point of of application. You know, there's a lot of talk in the world today about identity. There's a lot of confusion out there about identity and where it comes from. And we see so many people trying to build an identity. For some, they build their identity around their job. Others choose to base their identity on their looks or perhaps on a relationship or maybe their ethnicity. The problem with building our identity on any one of these things is that they can all be taken. They can be stripped from you. And when that happens, it crumbles the foundation of your very life, and it can leave you just without hope. So John here teaches us something as he identifies himself as the one whom Jesus loves. You see, instead of trying to build his own identity, instead of allowing culture or other people to hand him an identity, John instead chooses to build his identity on who Jesus says he is. What a great piece of advice that is. Who are you? This is true for every person in here. (laughs) You're the one Jesus loves. I just love that. Can we just preach that to each other? Just turn to the person to your left and right and just say, you're the one Jesus loves. It was true of John, and it's true of each and every one of you. So that's John. Now, why did he write this gospel? I mean, we know that John's gospel was the last to be written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They had already been written. They were in circulation at this time. And so someone might ask, if there are already three separate accounts of Jesus' life, why bother penning a fourth? And there's some good answers to that. You see, each gospel, it it tackles the story from a, a slightly different perspective. The first three are known as, are what is known as the synoptic gospels. Maybe you've heard that term. It's a word that literally means to see the same. And they essentially tell the same stories, although, albeit from a slightly different angle or vantage point, and, and they draw different points of emphasis. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. He presents Jesus as Israel's king, the anointed. The fulfillment of prophecy and his favorite term for Jesus is the son of David. Mark, he wrote with a Roman audience in mind. He presents Jesus as the suffering servant. Luke writes with a Greek audience in mind, and his gospel showcases the humanity of Jesus. His favorite term for Jesus throughout his gospel is the son of man. But John, when we come to his gospel, it's very different than all the others. His intended audience is both Jews and Greeks and Romans. He's writing it to everyone. As far as why he writes it, he doesn't leave us to guess or wonder. 
He tells us plainly towards the end of the gospel in John chapter 20. And this is a longer verse, but let's read it together out loud as well. It says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So why does John write his account of Jesus' life, this biography? Specifically, he tells us these things have been written in order that you might believe. He wants to lead his reading audience to a saving faith in who Jesus is. So that's why he does things the way he does. He stays away from the parables, and, and he, he doesn't tell a lot of the stories that the other gospels tell, but he, he instead handpicks and hand selects just a few stories and really hones in and highlights them in the hopes that those stories might lead you to believe in Jesus and that in believing in him, you might have life in his name. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into our text. And it begins with a bang right there in verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So the eternal word, the eternal word. And right away, we're struck by the fact that John's account of Jesus' life, it's going to be dramatically different than those of the other gospels. I mean, you think about where they each begin their story. Mark, for his part, he skips the whole birth of Jesus and, and his adolescence and picks things up with the commencement of his earthly ministry. And then you have Luke and, and Matthew, and that's where we get kind of the traditional Christmas narratives, and that's where we learn about the wise men and Mary and Joseph and the angels and the manger scene and, and all of that stuff that is so fun to, to look at around Christmas time. But then we have John. And when we look at the way John starts, he goes back, not just to the beginning of Jesus' story or the beginning of every story. He goes back much, much, much further to a time before even time itself existed. I mean, the first phrase, in the beginning, that calls to mind the opening phrase of Genesis 1.1. Starts out with those same words, in the beginning. But that's where the similarities end, because instead of tracing the arc of that story, John takes a left turn, and he tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was already there in the beginning. Now, the word translated with there, it literally means face to face. So John is telling us that this Word that created everything who was with God in the very beginning is none other than God himself. Now, the Greek word for word there is the Greek word logos. Everybody say logos. Now, to the Greek, so it's an important word. And it spoke of the creative force that they believed was behind everything. But this was also an important concept for the Jewish reader. They know that taught that it was the word of God. God said, let there be light. And it was his words that created everything. And so they would have been tracking as well. And for the Jews, the Logos represented the revelation or the will 
of the heart of the Father. And John here is telling us something significant. He wants us to know that the Logos is more than just an impersonal creative force or an expression of who God is. He says that the, the word is actually a person. He refers to him in verse 2 as he and throughout the text. So God, John's creating some intrigue here. He wants his reader to ask, who is this word that created everything? And he doesn't tell us the answer right away. He's going to make us wait until all the way down at verse 14. And we're left to wonder, who's the word that created everything? And of course, I'm not going to make you wait that long. We know that it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the word of God who was made flesh. Hebrews talks about this, how Jesus is the final revelation of God. He is the last word. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And in Hebrews, we read this. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. This is Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. So that helps shed some light on the text we just read. Jesus is the final word. God has spoken, and his message comes to us loud and clear through his own son, Jesus Christ, the creator of everything. Now, John goes on in verse 4 to say this, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here we see this theme of light and life, this interplay and this exchange. Now, most of the commentaries that I read in preparation for this sermon agree that the first 18 verses of John's gospel are like a prologue. They're like an overture, a musical overture. And they give us a sampling of these themes that John is going to expand on and unfold in the pages to come. And so here we get to see one of those themes, or actually a couple of those themes. The first theme that he unfolds is this, this idea of life. Now, in him, in the, the word who is also the light of the world, in him was life. Now, John could have chosen any number of three different Greek words to describe the life that he brought. He could have used the Greek word bios, familiar word from where we get our English word biology, to describe the life that he brought. But he didn't choose that word. He could have used the word suke, the Greek word suke, which is where we get, of course, our word psychology. It speaks of the inner life. But when John wants to describe the kind of life, the nature of the life that this one named the word brought, he, he instead pulls out this word zoe. It, it's, it's a different kind of life. It doesn't speak of physical life or even inner life. It's, it's a word that speaks of spiritual life, rich, full, abundant life. Now, I think you'll agree with me that it's, it's possible to have bios without experiencing zoe. You can be physically alive and spiritually cavernous and dead. And Jesus came so that each and every one of us might walk in a full, rich, layered, nuanced, abundant life. He talked about it in John chapter 10, verse 10. Let's read this verse together out loud as well. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
I have come that they might have a life, Zoe, and have it to the full. You want to know what Satan's plan for your life is? Here it is spelled out for you in black and white. He wants to rob you, he wants to destroy you, and he wants to kill you. That pretty much sums it up. Anyone wanting to sign up? And Jesus says, but I have come that you might have Zoe, that you might have rich, abundant, supernatural, spiritual life. So that's a theme that he's going to develop. Another theme that John introduces to us here is this contrast between light and darkness. John wants us to know that the word was full of light. Now, we all recognize that light is essential for life. You, you remove the sun, and without that light, nothing on earth would survive, right? Well, in the same way that all physical life is dependent on the light of the sun, John is suggesting here that in a spiritual sense, we draw our life from Jesus. He is our source. Now, when Jesus, the light of the world, came to this earth, Satan, who the Bible also describes as the prince of darkness, he tried to snuff out that light. But notice what John says here. He says, the darkness couldn't overcome it, couldn't overcome the light. There was that brief moment when it appeared as though the dark had prevailed. It happened at the cross. And after Jesus had been hanging on the cross for about three hours, the Bible tells us how the whole sky went dark. And I believe it was in that moment, as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that the Father, whom the Son had known personal, intimate fellowship with for all of eternity past, I believe it was in that moment that the sins of the world were placed on Jesus' back, and the Father turned his face from the sun, and the sky went dark to reflect that. And it looked for about three days as though the darkness had overcome the light. But as we just celebrated two weeks ago now on Easter Sunday, as the first rays of sun were cresting the eastern horizon, Jesus was conquering the grave and overcoming the darkness. The light always triumphs over the darkness. Amen? Amen. Now, it's interesting because the same word that, where it says the darkness couldn't overcome the light, it could also, and perhaps some of your versions have that translated in this way, it didn't comprehend the light. That's interesting, right? I mean, which is it? We could go either way. And the answer is, it's both. You see, Jesus, he's the light of the world. And he did triumph over the darkness. But so many who were trapped in darkness, they didn't come to the light. They failed to comprehend who Jesus was. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, like, how could anyone who saw him perform the miracles that he performed and, and saw and experienced who Jesus was and how he taught and what he did, how could you deny who he was? And John tells us just a few chapters later, and I'll just read this one to you. This is John 3.19. He tells us why. He says, this is the verdict, that light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness instead of the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. So it wasn't that they, they couldn't accept Jesus. They chose to reject the light because they preferred the darkness. It's a little bit like this. Have you ever gone to a movie in the mid-afternoon 
My wife doesn't like to see movies during the day. She has a thing about that. I'll watch movies at any time. I love it. So you go to the movie in the middle of the day, and, and you get used to that dark environment. And what happens when you walk back out in the middle of the day with the sun shining bright after you've been in a dark room? Your, your pupils dilate, and you take all that light, and you want to squint. You want to just shut your eyes, because it's too much. And that's the experience that a lot of people had with Jesus. They saw the light of the glory of God shining from him in every word that he spoke, in every deed that he performed, in every miracle that they witnessed. It was light coming from heaven. And because they loved the darkness, they eschewed the light and ran back to the dark. So they couldn't comprehend it. Now, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. All right, so here's the next theme that John introduces us to, and it's this idea of witnesses. Now remember, John's trying to build a case here for us, that Jesus is the Son of God. And as such, he employs the use of witnesses to strengthen that case. And so the first witness that he calls to the the witness stand, if you will, to testify is John the Baptist. You could think of him as Exhibit A. Now, now we're going to be looking at his story in greater detail next time we're gathered together. So I'm just going to touch on it here briefly. But suffice it to say, this guy was a unique character. If you know anything about him, he, he just had this wild look about him and wild hair. And he, he, his diet consisted of locusts and honey. And he walked around in clothing made from camel's hair. He ate bugs for dinner. And he was this fiery preacher who preached a message of repentance and baptism. And all the people considered John to be a prophet sent from God. And so it's significant that he identified Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And he pointed to him. And and so that's why John's bringing him up here. He's a witness. And he goes on in verse 8. He says, but he himself was not the true light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now, the true light, the one that gives light to everyone who's coming into the world, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. I love these verses. To as many as receive him is the title I've given to this section. I mean, think about how incredible these statements are that John just made as he talks about this one who came into the world that he created, yet it didn't recognize him. Now, he's not talking here about the physical world, right? Because we know that it did recognize Jesus, right? The wind and the waves, they obeyed him. Sickness and disease, they recognized his authority too. And when you look at the spiritual Realm. Even the demons came under the authority of Jesus. They recognized him. But when you look at the world in the sense of the people that filled it, those are the ones who missed him. 
The religious crowd failed to recognize Jesus, and so did most of everybody else. However, there were a few, a few scattered believers who came, like, just like John, <clears throat> to ultimately believe that he was the Son of God. And among them, you would find tax collectors and outcasts and prostitutes, fishermen, maybe a few religious guys. I mean, these were the, the lower rungs on the social strata of the day. But like John, they all came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And to as many as believed in him, he talks about. Now, this idea of belief is another mega theme that we'll be unpacking in the weeks to come as we explore the Gospel of John. This, this word shows up some 90 times in John's Gospel. It might be the theme of the Gospel of John. But let's, let's unpack that. What does the Bible mean when it says, as many as believed in him, they received this gift of eternal life? <clears throat> well, in the Bible, Belief means more than mere mental or intellectual assent to a set of facts or truths. Let's, let's picture it like this. Most of us believe that if we were to get on a plane and we see planes flying around and we could get on a plane and the pilot would take off and fly us to wherever we wanted to go, let's just hop on a plane for Hawaii. And you could stand with your feet firmly planted on the ground and say, I believe that if I got on that plane, I would land at my destination. And planes do it every day. But that's not biblical belief. That's intellectual or mental assent, but it's not biblical faith. You see, many people believe in Jesus Christ like that. They believe, yes, Jesus was a man, and he lived about 2,000 years ago, and he was, a, he was sent from God. And, and you might even agree that he was God, and that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Those are all facts. But you know who else believes all that stuff? Demons. James talks about that in James the epistle of James. And so that's not saving faith. We'd all agree that demons aren't going to heaven. Can we agree on that point this evening? OK, good. We found common ground. So if that's not the belief that saves, then what is? Biblical belief goes beyond mental acceptance and involves, listen, it involves active trust. It's more like buying the ticket and then boarding the plane. That's what God is calling us to do. And to as many as believe in him and personally put their trust in him, saying, Jesus, when you died on the cross, it was my sins that you were paying for. If you believe in him in that way, then he gives you the privilege or the honor, the right to become the children of God. Wow. Talk about an upgrade. And this, this gets at the heart of the gospel. What is the gospel? that God takes orphans and he makes them sons and daughters, that he takes sinners and he turns them into saints, that he takes the lost and gives them brand new life, spiritual life, zoe life. It's not physical life. It's not natural. It's being born again. Again, another theme that we'll see come to play in the coming weeks. This is what Jesus came to do. For all who believe in him, he gives the right to become the children of God. You can make your way into God's family. I can't think of anything 
cooler than that that I could tell you this evening. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are part of his family, that he sees you as his son or as his daughter. Let's wrap this up in verse 14. It says, the word became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is staggering. This verse is um, where we get to see the invisible God, seeing the invisible God. And John, he uses just four words here to explain the most profound theological truth that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. He uses just four, there are four words in the English and four words in the Greek. The word became flesh. In other words, God became a man. Theologians refer to this event as the incarnation. When it says here that he made his dwelling among us, that literally translates to he tabernacled among us or he pitched his tent among us. You know, the tabernacle was where God would meet with his people in the Old Testament. And it was, it was a tent where God would show up. And his, his gl- glory and his manifest presence would reveal itself to Moses and to the high priest. But even that, it wasn't close enough for God. He wanted to get closer to us. And that really is the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It is paradise lost in Genesis. And then it is God's attempt to to rectify, to stitch back together that which was lost. And so he, he comes up with the tabernacle system and the sacrificial system. And he comes down and he manifests his glory there and later on through the temple. But none of that was close enough. And God wants to get closer. So he wraps himself in human flesh. And he comes to this earth as a man. Wow. I can't think of anything more staggering than that. Eugene Peterson in The Message, which I love The Message. It's a paraphrase. But it sometimes grabs the heart of the passage. And he translates verse 14 like this. Let's read this together out loud. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I'm sure you were reading with me, but that was so quiet. Can we read it again? Here's why. When you speak the word forth, when it comes out of your mouth, there is power in the spoken word of God. I truly believe that. So we speak the word, and it's not just me speaking it over you, but it is you speaking words that bring life, bring healing, bring hope, bring resurrection power. Okay, let's read it together out loud. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I like that. (laughs) For 33 years, God moved onto our cul-de-sac, so to speak. He walked down our street. He lived among us. Why did he do that? Again, it was because he wanted to be close. He could have came and held us at arm's length, right? If you want to come into a community and hold everyone else at arm's length, you you move into a big walled mansion or compound. If you do that, you're probably saying, hey, I like you, but just keep your distance. Jesus didn't do that. He just threw up a tent. And if you're living in a tent, you're pretty much accessible to everyone. And that's what we get. They say you can't really know someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. And certainly that applies in our case, and through the person of Jesus, what we get to see is the infinite God who is out there, come down here and put on flesh and bones. 
In Jesus, we get to see the love of God beat in a human heart. We get to see the wisdom of God spoken through human lips. The mercy of God reached out to through human hands. Jesus was liquid love wrapped in human flesh. And why did he do it? In closing, two thoughts. Number one, Jesus came to show us what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. In Jesus, we hear that God loves. We get to see that he forgives, that he heals, that he embraces all who come to him. I love that story about the little girl who was frightened at night during a thunderstorm. She cried to her daddy, and she hears the the clap of thunder and sees the flash of lightning. And she says, Daddy, help me. And her daddy, who's in the next room and very tired, says, Honey, God loves you. He'll take care of you. I don't think he wanted to get out of bed. Another bolt of lightning and clap of thunder caused the girl to cry out again, Daddy. Her daddy gave the same response. Honey, God loves you. He'll take care of you. Go back to bed. The storm raged on again. The frightened girl yelled again, and her dad's response was the same. This time, the girl replied, Daddy, I know that God loves me, but right now, I need someone with skin on them. (laughs) A cute little story, but isn't that what we all need sometimes? Just love with skin on it, and that's who Jesus is. He is God with skin on it. So you don't have to wonder, what is the heart of God? What is God like? What brings him joy? What makes him mad? What does he think about me? All you have to do is read through the life of Jesus, and you get to see the eternal word made flesh. You get to see the invisible God in the person of Jesus. And then lastly, Jesus, secondly, came also to redeem us back to God. This is why he came. He came to show us who God is and to open the door so that we could have renewed fellowship with God. We owed a debt we couldn't pay, and that's why Jesus came. He came and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned, not even once. And then he died a sacrificial death in our place for our sins on our behalf. The Bible says that he who knew no sin was made sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And he did that in order that we might have life through his name, Zoe. And that's what we're going to celebrate now as we move into a time of communion together. So would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Thank you, Jesus, for your word and for this life that you came to bring us. There is life in your name, eternal life, abundant life, supernatural life. Jesus, we celebrate that life now. Even as it was poured out, we recognize that it wasn't the tragic end to a great story. It wasn't just a beautiful life that was cut short in the prime of its telling, but rather there was something that was being accomplished at the cross. And so we take these moments to reflect now on what that work was. And perhaps you're here this evening, and you came to consider the claims of Christ. And and you've been checking things out for a while, and you're ready to cross that threshold. Like John, like myself, like this worship team, like so many in this room, you're ready to cross the the line and, and say, you know what? 
I believe that when Jesus died, it, it, it's not just a fact, but it's something that, that changes my history. It changes my present. It empowers my future. He died for my sins. I receive that gift of salvation. I put my heart and my hope and my future and my fears, I put my whole life into the hands of Jesus. If that's the desire of your heart, I would like to pray with you as you welcome Jesus into your heart. And if that's the desire of your heart, if you want your sins forgiven, you can do that simply now by inviting him in. Just say, dear Jesus. And I'll just invite all of us to say this prayer together out loud as a way of affirming our love for those of us who already know and, Lord, know and love the Lord. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and dying on the cross in my place and forgiving my sins. Please give me eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now help me to live for you every day till I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.